Hi, my name is Aaron Ross Powell, and I want to welcome you to the inaugural episode of Reimagining Liberty, my new podcast about radical liberalism and the ideas that influence it. My goal for today's conversation was to set the direction and tone of the whole Reimagining Liberty podcast going forward. And to do that, I brought on my friend Corey Massimino. Corey is a philosophy student and a fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society. He's also one of the smartest young scholars I know, and our talks and Twitter debates over the last several years played a large part in the evolution of my thinking. In today's episode, we talk about the need for the liberty movement to decouple from its historical alliance with conservatism and the American right. We explore the ways reading outside of your comfort zone and exposing yourself to ideas you're inclined to disagree with can be hugely beneficial. And we wander into topics like liberty and virtue and libertarianism as a project of emancipation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Reimagining Liberty, Corey. Thanks for having me on for your first episode. I'm very excited to talk to you and to see you in your podcast up and running. One of the things that led me to this podcast was a frustration with the dominance of conservatism within the libertarian movement. So fusionism, which for people unfamiliar is is kind of this strategy where libertarians cozied up to the American right as a way to gain influence within the political party and to affect political change in ways that they thought they thought conservatives would agree with. There was a, com- a compatibility between conservatism rightly understood and libertarianism rightly understood, and that this strategy has then informed a lot of what we have seen in the libertarian movement for the last 50 plus years. Um, and and in the current climate, it feels like this this strategy has at best run its course and at worst has become a tremendous liability with what's happened to the American right and the way that this cuts us as libertarians, as free market people, as people dedicated to radical liberty off from audiences that might be more receptive now to our ideas or at least could bring more intellectual diversity to the movement. And a lot of that has resulted now in, I think if you, most people, if you ask them about libertarianism or where they place us, they think of libertarians as conservative. When I was at the Cato Institute, we would always get frustrated because journalists would refer to us in articles as the conservative Cato Institute. Sometimes the libertarian Cato Institute, never the progressive Cato Institute. And we'd always say, like, why can't they, you know, why can't we see we're not conservatives? But it's, I guess the journalists can be forgiven for thinking that libertarians are conservatives because libertarians certainly tend to have in the past worked more closely with Republicans than Democrats, spent, put more effort into recruiting from the right than from the left, networking with right-leaning groups versus left-leaning groups and so on. My question for you is, is this a ideologically necessary positioning? Like, is it the case that libertarianism is adjacent to or a form of conservatism? Should libertarians think of themselves as on the right or a movement of the right? Well, I definitely used to. And I think 
one reason some journalists can be forgiven, as you said, I suppose, is because so many libertarians still do. Institutionally, sociologically, libertarians are very embedded within um, the American right wing in terms of, you know, nonprofits and organizations and and um, networks of of people and donors and things like that. Um, I mean, it doesn't overlap completely. Like like you said, like Cato probably should not be called conservative. <laughs> there are so numerous uh, areas that Cato does that does, that conservatives loathe, um, like stuff on borders or drugs. So I think that institutionally speaking, it unfortunately is very embedded within um, the American right wing. But ideologically speaking, it's not just unnecessary. I, I really think it's um, completely detrimental to libertarian ideas and, and even incoherent in some ways. Um, I think it's a contingent feature of Cold War politics in a way. And I guess we're having a, a comeback for Cold War politics recently. So that's maybe not maybe not great for – but it, I think it really just emerged, like you said, um, in the in the 20th century, um, largely because of contingent political alliances and factions. And even there, it wasn't so clean cut. You had plenty of libertarians who did not like that alliance and would cut against it, or even perhaps in some ways overreact by allying with people on the left who they otherwise wouldn't. But we'll, I guess we'll get into more of that. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't think, I think ideologically it's, it's, um, it's kind of a non-starter. I, I think it's it's completely detrimental that that people, um, both libertarian and anti or non-libertarian, um, kind of think of the concepts in this way. Like I said, I used to think of it that way. I mean, I, I come from the right, more or less, very pretty brief, I guess. Right when I first got into politics, you know, I I had a lot of I, I from the very beginning, I had very libertarian impulses. I was never, you know. Uh, socially conservative or religious or anything like that. And I had libertarian impulses, um, like live and let live. I mean, it was pretty basic. Um, but then, you know, I very quickly, it seemed like, well, that was who talked in the language of uh, con- con- constraining government, who talked in the language of freedom, of expanding liberty. Well, it was mostly conservatives that I could see and and, and often still is the case. Um, so I think at first, you know, I definitely thought of that too. And it took it took a while to break out of that kind of completely and he almost like completely reorient myself and thinking about where libertarian ideas lie um in term in relation to other other ideological concepts and and um parts of the political spectrum. Um so I think I think it's contingent. I think it's easier to do away with than than people think, but it's very embedded in institutions. But if we dig into some of those early reasons for the emergence of this alliance, so we won't we can talk maybe later about the the pre-fusionist history and where the the early movement for liberty originated in and thought of itself. But in in that post middle of the twentieth century, you know, we had on the one hand it was it was an alliance against communism, right? Like the the pro market, uh, like economic liberty libertarians loathed communism and the soviet system and the right were the allies against communism um, i think there's the problem there is that the right wasn't really allied against communism in a broadly pro freedom direction it was more of a like they they represent kind of a threat to the way that we want to rule um and and you go back and you read like the really staunch anti communist like you know 
Dulles at the CIA, Hoover at the FBI, like these were pretty authoritarian guys in their worldview. They weren't radical libertarians. And, you know, the CIA, like Dulles basically was the communists were a threat to kind of the CIA getting to do all of its messing around in other countries and so on. And Hoover was wildly against the the civil rights movement because there was a there was a hierarchy that needed to be in place of like who is in power and what views ruled and so on. Um, and so it was never really about advancing a libertarian agenda as it was fighting this thing that was an ideological rival to right wing, if not authoritarianism, at least like kind of reactionary politics. Um, and I think a lot of it too was that the left was the the socially progressive um, and also was having a lot of dalliances with communism and those kind of overlapped a fair amount. But but if you look at the early arguments, it was it was the anti-communism, but also there was this view that liberty is uh, liberty is necessary for virtue cultivation, right? That you like if you're going to be virtuous, you it has to be something that you have achieved on your own. You can't be forced into it. You need to discover this and cultivate the virtues yourselves. So you need the you need the liberty and the state can't really do it for you. But on the other hand, and so that's where you get the libertarian side of it, but then you get the conservative side of it in that the conservatives are the ones, the conservatives and the conservative traditions and the embedded knowledge in these things are the ones that tell us what virtue is. Um, that virtue is these established traditions and views um, and so you need the liberty to cultivate it but you need the conservatism to tell you what to cultivate and marry the two and you get this this fusionist project i guess i'm curious what you think of that particular argument for it that you know liberty can only thrive if with virtuous people the leftist views tend to lead to the breakdown of virtue and the family and traditional organizations and the institutions that give us meaning and so on. And and so we can have our liberty, but it shouldn't take us in a leftward direction. I think that it was probably very counterproductive and still is and kind of weird to think of it like, like on the one hand, you've got conservatives. All right, well, they stand for virtue. And on the other hand, you've got progressives and well well what's the opposite of virtue well that's that's vice they so they stand for vice and then libertarians are like somehow outside of or outside of this and have like no inherent position on it and then just like have to decide which one we like hitch our our wagon to like virtue or vice like obviously the case is virtue then but so that's just like uh, i think a wildly like strange way to think about it i think i i think talk of of virtue and and morality um I mean, obviously, that's that's uh, omnipresent across the political spectrum. The conservatives have no monopoly on those things. What they what conservatives stand for is are these traditional uh, moralities that that we've had um, for at least a couple decades or centuries to varying degrees. I think often they play really fast and loose with what they count as um, among the things that they want to conserve. But but nevertheless, that that that's separate, you know, standing um, for established institutions um, and ex- institutions that already exist or already embedded within society, uh, maybe even pervasive. I mean, that's completely different than standing for 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 virtue. Uh, the question is, where does virtue really lie or what uh, what what parts of traditional institutions 
are truly virtuous or truly vicious. It's strange to just sit back at the beginning and then decide, well, everything that already exists is on the side of us cultivating virtue. So I think, I mean, I think libertarianism is itself offering a position on what, on, on, on at least parts about what virtue is concerned with, because libertarianism is opposed to coercion and force. And the, of course, the idea there is that those things are at odds with a life well lived with, with, with a good, with a good life for, for beings like us. So that's not the end of the moral story that doesn't exhaust the whole question and the whole issue of, of what kind of institutions do we think are compatible with that traditional institutions, new institutions, something else that we haven't thought of. But, but it's weird for me to libertarians for libertarians to see themselves outside of this issue. And, and I mean, no, I mean, if I, I, at times I find myself agreeing with a lot of what conservatives say, right. Because they're, because they're right that I think that a society without established moral norms or that falls into a kind of nihilism is completely undesirable. And it would be, it would be bad for liberty. It would also be bad for for other virtues, for other good things in life, um, and for sustaining that society. I think falling into nihilism is, is, is absolutely to be avoided, but I think it's a mistake to then side with the conservatives and think that other things entail nihilism when, when in fact, they presuppose the opposite, like libertarians' opposition to, to coercion and force. I think that's part of, you know, over the last several years, noticing how much, I mean, both sides do this, both sides, the, the left and the right, have caricatured views of each other and then spend most of their time arguing with those imagined versions of each other or assuming those imagined versions are you know representative of everyone but on this virtue thing it just it seems crazy to me to think that a that like the right has kind of a monopoly on virtue but b that that the left or progressivism or um or social call it social liberalism i don't want to call it progressivism because that loops in a whole lot of economic ideas and so on like so you know so so social liberalism or social progressivism is that any of those people are rejecting virtue or morality like you can find weirdos on the fringes who but but like i don't know i genuinely don't know like people on the left who are anti-family or anti-social ties or you know don't believe that there is value in deep social connection that there's value in you know peaceful interaction that there's like it's it's not this like nihilistic rejection of things it is simply it's a to oversimplify it's like it's a different set of virtues um and and the the frustration that i increasingly had is that the there wasn't much in the way of arguments for why one perceived set of virtues was better than another perceived set of virtues. It was just, we've got the virtues and they don't. And then it becomes very acute when you see like, okay, but your, your virtues have you passing like these don't say gay laws in Florida or stripping, you know, necessary therapeutic stuff from trans kids or like these really destructive and corrosive um, and and that's not virtuous behavior. That's vicious behavior. But we're supposed to just kind of accept it as like, well, it's it's traditional. It's you know, it's social norms. It's whatever. Um, but 
I guess virtue is something that needs to be argued for. Like you have to make the case for why your behavior is virtuous. You can't just assume that it is. Um, and it has to be like in a dialogue. And um, and so this this notion of a monopoly on virtue on one side and that the other side actually consciously rejects virtue is is just entirely unmoored from reality. Yeah, I think it's very strange. I mean, my obviously my view is definitely that um, you know, respecting uh, a trans person, a, a queer person, respecting their identity, their rights to to be and and present and, and exist how they want. That that's virtuous to me. That's <laughs> it would be vicious to to uh, suppress someone's um, expression and, and and identity and authenticity like that, and especially to cultivate a kind of culture that that pervasively shames or or at worst, as we're seeing now, coercing people and uh, using force to stop them from living the way that they want. Uh, and, 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 and again, I think libertarianism, it's not some like stuck in the middle, doesn't have any positions on virtue, um, in and of itself. It does. I mean, it's a very moralistic view to say that, well, we have a pretty much, un- uh, uh, you know, unviable duty to respect person and justly acquired property. That's a very moralistic view. That's a very, that emphasizes moral duties and moral obligations to people. Um, and it's kind of ironic because, a lot of conservatives now, it feels like they almost criticize some libertarians and much of the left for being overly moralistic, right? For being as uh, for being um, too on their toes with, with looking out for for failures to 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 um, live up to our moral duties as people, and and that that creates such an irony to it. It feel it feels like the conversation is very muddled. I, I like you said, like it's like it's it is unmoored from reality to just say that, you know, to give this like partisan understanding of virtue that's very strange and counterproductive. So then does it make sense to situate libertarianism if if what we're saying is tying a principled commitment to liberty or tying radical liberalism to the American right is a mistake for, you know, not just ideological, but potentially strategic and tactical reasons. Um, does that mean that we should then tie as, as liberty advocates tie it to the left or so there'd be a kind of a counter fusionism with the left? I, well, I, I don't think that that itself is a very good argument for, counterfusionism because if anything that's recapitulating the same logic that you mentioned earlier drove libertarians into allying with the right in the uh, uh, you know after the after world war ii so you know just basically deciding which of these imperial powers the soviet union or the united states do i need to ally with well let's pick the united states and then here deciding which um which faction of american politics to ally yourself with i i think i think another way in which these conversations can be muddled is what do we mean by by because because right and left are themselves uh, complex groups and increasingly fractured and kind of diverse. Um, it's hard for me to sit back and like centrally plan like how the liber all right so like how many people in the libertarian movement we're going to ally with the right we're going to ally with the left we're going to see how this goes like it's hard to run these kind of like experiments and then like conclusively like prove at the end like okay like here here here's the side that does more for liberty on net or something like i i'm of the view that many of the values associated with the left um are much more compatible with values of libertarianism values of 
respect for for people and and their free expression and and their desire to live the way they choose uh respect for social experimentation and 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 pluralism and i think the right is really hostile to these things uh that doesn't make the left perfect it doesn't mean i i mean anything necessarily about the democratic party versus the republican party um to me the question of whether we should be doing stuff in the electoral sphere is kind of orthogonal to this whole issue the issue is conceptually like for my own for my own psychological benefit and and for coming to a accurate coherent conception of how these values fit together um and what i should value as well what i'm committed to valuing i think that for that discussion i think libertarian values have much in common with leftist values i think they're both uh, fundamentally attempts at a, uh, attempts at a kind of egalitarian moral framework and libertarians are allergic to that word, um, but they weren't always. And even in our fusionist uh, era, there's always these kind of breaking through. I feel like people, you know, you have you have you have you have a lot of our major thinkers. I think that make points here and there that that kind of is that strand of libertarian thinking that is counter to fusionism coming through. Hayek wrote uh, about how capitalism was not a good word for what we, what libertarianism is about, um, and for the kind of economic system that libertarianism would would, would entail. Um, Rothbard spent a while uh, allying with the left, perhaps too far. If anything, he's a failure mode. I think of what of that kind of reactionary, like going too far to, and apologizing even for for someone like Che in his case. But also, a lot of good came from that alliance, and I look to that that alliance. Um, a lot as, as, as it seems like during that time, at least Rothbard also argued that again, like liberalism emerged in, in, in opposition to conservatism, to the old order, to these traditions that are stifling us. And then it kind of fractured into like libertarianism and socialism. And so I think people have their priorities confused and, and also tend to view other people as like subversive enemies of some other camp. And so, they inhibit their own way of like their own conceptual framework becomes like shackled to these, like what we said before, basically these cold war factions that are not necessarily relevant anymore. If they were ever conceptually accurate. I think that's an interesting point about the, the shackling of the, of the conceptual side of things, because there is this, there's a tendency and I think it's a worrying one, but a often pretty present one where you essentially reason backwards to the conceptual so you start with, I want to affect policy change, say, and these are the people who I feel like I can I can work with on this. And for you know for a long time, it was the case that like if you wanted to, if you were looking at the economic questions, and so you wanted to limit the government's presence in the economy, you wanted to roll back regulations, you wanted to, taking less money from people to then spend on all the bad things the government spends the money on you the the american right or the conservatives or republicans were much more receptive to those kinds of arguments than the left were and if those were the dominant issues that mattered to you it was it was the the economic side of things um then you were you were willing to overlook all of the bad anti-liberty views that the right held at the time um, and if you were in the left, there might have been overlap in other areas 
you know, like on criminal justice and the social side of things, but they were they were all like secretly socialists or all wanted the government regulating everything. And so we couldn't really work with them on on these issues that had become central. But the problem, I think, with that is that it gets you into this because politics is so stupidly tribal. And so like, who are my networks? Who are my people? Who are we against? Um, that you end up it's basically like you your friend circles become like one side versus the other and then you do what we do with our friend circles and our peer groups and our tribes all the time which is you start critiquing the other guys a lot harder than your own guys and you start over you're much more willing to overlook bad stuff that your friends are doing than bad stuff or explain it away or be like well they don't really mean it or whatever versus the other guys and then as that plays out over decades and you start to think like well i'm i mood affiliate more with these guys than those guys i you know i'm more comfortable talking with these guys than those guys then those are the people you're spending time around those are the people who you're like when I want to bring more people in the movement. Who am I going to reach out to? I'm going to reach out to the people I'm comfortable talking with, you know, and and then the perspectives that you have available narrow. And I've I've pointed this out on Twitter a lot, but one of the things that bugs me the most in American political discourse, especially of the the intellectual sort, is when people the only source of information that they get about the views of the opposing side is in essentially repack like is in criticisms written by their own side you know so this was the if the only thing you know about the libertarian movement is what is when you read criticisms of it at slate you know or the only thing you know about left-leaning or left-wing ideologies marxism critical race theory critical theory you know whatever these happen to be is like the the explanations of it from Quillette or Jordan Peterson or so on. And and all that that does is just doubles down that isolation because of course these ideas look really stupid when they're being, when all you know about them is what was written in a critical piece about them that, that its conclusion is they're really stupid. Right. And maybe, maybe they are stupid. Like maybe these ideas that the left has or these ideas of the right have are stupid, but you're not going to know that until you engage with them directly and they're probably not stupid if lots of smart people believe them they might be wrong but wrong's different than stupid um and wrong's different than evil and you're never going to get to like why they're actually wrong if you just think they're stupid and evil but but if if you're stuck in this like tactical mindset where it's like who are my friends who are my enemies who are my allies who are not and and you have suspicion of anything that looks like it's ideologically exploring or even just like attempting to understand stuff from the other from other teams then it just it just locks in this mindset and it becomes easier and easier and easier to think that there's no there's no value in stepping outside of it even on top of all the great points that you made and 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 I think it's worth pointing out none of this is remotely like partisan like this kind of attitude is like pervasive. There's no necessary ideological connection. Um, I don't think I see it all the time. Um, I mean, and I can slip into that and, and I think everyone can, it's kind of an ongoing thing to be avoided, but even on top of all the, all the points of that, like that, like it's so boring. Like, are you just going to spend, you know, all your time reading stuff you already agree with? I mean, it's so boring 
step outside your like your mental models, like try something else on, try like on a new pair of glasses that, that, that help you interpret the world differently um, outside your house. Like it's very, uh, it's almost like people are scared of adventure. They're scared of their, like they're going to like lose their original beliefs or convictions. And if they're really good convictions, then you're not going to, um, if anything, you're just going to improve your convictions. You're going to make them more nuanced. You're going to maybe add different convictions. Uh, you're going to flush them out further. You're also going to understand the convictions of people that you presumably have to talk to, live with, interact with, work with. You're going to understand their convictions better. Um, you know, a lot, we've been talking a lot about libertarianism and the left, but, but, but this applies to every, I think uh, under the sun, all, all good faith ideologies, conservatism as well. I, you know, read libertarians, read leftists, read conservatives, read their actual arguments. Um, if your arguments are so good, then you're not going to have a problem in your head arguing against whatever you're reading, but it, yeah, I think it's a, it's a shame that, Oh, go ahead. I I was just, I think that the, the boring point is a really good one. Like I, every now and then I'll get asked like, what's, what's the best or most exciting book you've read in a long time, you know, like in the last X number of months or years or whatever. And it's almost always books that I disagree with are the ones because they're the ones that inspire thinking, right? Like reading someone who states yeah, who sets out my my positions exactly would first be I mean be a profoundly weird experience to come across someone like that. But but it's also like you know I someone asked me recently like what was the most interesting book you read in the last however long? And I think I the answer I gave was Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, which is like this oh, absolutely like hardcore marxist track yeah it looks and, bad um and it is and, but am i doing what i what i was just yeah, criticizing? I, but it was it was one of these books where i was like i think almost all of this is wrong but it is wrong in really interesting ways yeah. and and wrong trying in ways is really and trying to think about like why it's wrong is helping me get better at making the case for my positions or making you know figure out how to make my positions more persuasive and so on. Um, and and the other thing, and this is something, you know, since this is the first episode of the show, I mean, like this is one of my goals for this show is to explore a lot of the ideas that I think a lot of people in like liberty advocacy don't tend to explore. They tend to just dismiss. Um, not because I think that these ideas are correct, but because they're wrong in interesting ways. But also these broad philosophies, you know, Often, even if they're largely like 90% wrong, we'll have like 10% that's super interesting and that you can like learn from and you can repurpose into your own thinking. Marxism is, you know, very wrong, but has a bunch of like interesting ways to think about dynamics of power and structural incentives and things like that, that you can be like, I can pick up on this. I can learn from this. I can critique it and so on. And so one of my goals for this show is to dig into those kinds of ideas and say, we can think this is wrong. We don't have to like give up our principles to read these things, but exploring ideas outside our comfort zone is really the only way to like intellectually grow. And then that intellectual growth makes you a better, more capable advocate for your own ideas. I think I, I greatly improved my, improved my understanding um, of 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 markets and also increased my uh 
my support for markets by reading Marx and not just Marx, but Marxists and, and, but, 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 but very much Marx and really trying to like understand and get into that headspace. It's hard when you come from a different, like you start somewhere else. Some people start with Marx and they have to try really hard to think about whatever Hayek is saying or something, but I, you know, so it's, but, but, but my, I think my, my, my self-understanding of, of, of the arguments that I've often found um, compelling and found an intuitive draw in, they only, I mean, some of them went by the wayside, like you said, like I was saying earlier, my ideas have kind of evolved um, as hopefully everyone's does, but, but some, some, but others have become a little more kind of fleshed out and, and even, even, even more um, of a conviction. And one of those things I think is my support for markets and reading a lot of just the last couple of years, trying to really understand the case for planning um, the, 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 the practical and moral objections to markets, the wide array of anti-market ideas. I mean, just as there's an enormous array of pro-market ideas, there's no, just as enormous, if not more of anti-market ideas of trying to think outside the box, uh, in a way and come up with creative uh, alternatives to markets. And nevertheless, I came away thinking, ah, markets are still really cool and really underrated by people on the left. Um, and when it comes to the other side, I mean, a lot of the left, especially the more radical left, the anarchist people I, I kind of I more, I more associate with, uh, their alarm bells kind of go off at talk of virtue, and 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 like because because as we were saying earlier, like conserv- that's the language of conservatism, that's the language of traditionalism of the old order, and so that's an area too where I'm kind of adding in another kind of weird. That's the area where where I really when I read conservatives like. It's interesting how you can agree so much about what they're talking about with virtue, but as we were saying earlier, like the contents of what they're saying does that necessarily map onto what you think is virtuous. But 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 reading that stuff, um, I think both illuminated really interesting aspects to virtue, to the importance of 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 basically transmitting um, useful moral norms and institutions from generation to generation. That stuff is very interesting and changed my views, and also uh, reinforced my support for i don't know i feel like integralists they say like they use it like uh, pejoratively but my support for for authenticity um you know they say like the cult of authenticity i've, I've heard that phrase and it's like uh, yeah i mean i don't it's like the yes meme for that phrase because i don't i don't know i i think this this vision of a world where people can be their fully authentic selves. They can express themselves. They can try out experiment with different, different norms and, and values and practices like that's great. And not at all odds with a vision of a sustainable human community that, that values society and, and, and transmitting moral norms down um, through the generations. But anyway, this is a, a long winded way of saying like expanding where you read or what what stuff you you pay attention to can be like pretty fun and kind of surprise you. I think we forget these people that we the, the canonical thinkers, whoever it happens to be, whichever side we're on. So whether that's you're reading Hayek and Mises or you're reading Marx or whatever, like those guys were writing their stuff in a dialogue with others, right? Like they were writing it in response to ideas. They were arguing against ideas. They were engaging with alternative ways of seeing things. And if all that we do is read our guys, then it's basically we're just, we're listening to half of a conversation. 
you know, we're not getting the like we're not even having. So what it means is that we're not even fully understanding our own side because we're missing what it is that they were actually engaging with and that they thought was important enough to try to engage with this way. Uh, and and it feels like for a lot of it, we forget like what the whole purpose of this stuff is that, you know, like you can engage in you can be into political philosophy for as a purely intellectual pursuit. And there are there are people who are and that's great. But like for a lot of us, it is like we're actually trying to affect change in the world, like positive change in the world. That's the goal. Um, and whether that is in the form of policy change or the form of more like direct action, ground up, make the world better or some combination of both. We're trying to make the world better in the ways that we believe in. Um, and the only way you can do that, you can do that by basically using violence to beat the other people over the head to get them to stop doing what you don't like. But the, but the only like positive you know humanity affirming way is persuasion right like we uh, the so the liberty movement is very small um the only way it will see success is by convincing more people to sign on to the same set of values and goals that we have as fractured as those can be and how much internal disagreement there can be there still is this broad you know like pro-liberty direction um but the only way to do that, to grow the number of people, is to persuade them, and that means engaging with them. And so if all you're doing is talking to your friends and alienating other people or telling other people they're not worth talking to, then you're never going to grow the thing. You're never going to persuade. You're just going to be keep doubling down on the same little networks and so on. Um, and so it's not – It's it seems like you're just it's, – it's wheel spinning. Um, but it's it's hard work because it means like we kind of as just like humans, we don't want we don't want to put in the work to understand the people we disagree with. We just want to know that they're wrong and bad. Um, but you really have to put in that work. And if and that means and if if the view is that you should be suspicious of people who are exploring those ideas, because maybe because the exploration of those ideas maybe means that they're not really one of us because they're exploring stuff that's not ours, you know, then then you're cutting yourself off. Um, and so, again, like a goal of this show is just is to just jettison that kind of unhelpful thinking and say these ideas matter and they matter because we think they can genuinely make the world a better place. And making the world a better place is not a partisan thing. It's not that our side wants to make the better world a better place and the other guys, their goal is to set out to make the world a worse place. Like no one – very few people think that way. Um and so we have to we have to figure out how to have these meaningful conversations and and I just I feel like that all of the incentives in in politics run against having those kinds of meaningful conversations. I agree. I think I think it's kind of you don't have to blind yourself to other views to have to be said to have an ideology to have convictions to be to count as wanting to make the world a better place. I think sometimes it can be frightening because of how many ideas there are. Um, and so there's a tendency to kind of like want to recede into your, you know, your cozy little safe space of the ideas that you know, that you like, that make sense to you, that are not scary. Um, well, how do we, let me ask about that then, because that's something when I have made this point, like on Twitter about read outside your comfort zone, explore ideas you disagree with, engage with them directly. One of the responses, the frequent ones is, so you're telling me that I should be reading 
all of Dinesh D'Souza's books and reading <laughs> the Flat Earthers and, you know, and like listening to what the the loonies on this side or the loonies on that side are saying, which like obviously there does have to be, as you said, it's there's a lot of ideas that aren't your own and you can't explore all of them. So how do we how do we figure out which ones are the ones to explore and which ones are the ones that you actually can safely say I've got it. Like I, I understand enough. I don't need to dig into that one. When you find out, you know, let me know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, obviously, there's. This is a tough one, and I've I've thought about this stuff a lot. I have a lot of experience with conspiracy theories, both from when I was younger and more attracted to them, and also um, family members who were very into conspiracies. And so that it, it makes it hard if you're trying to. You know, what are we talking about? We're, we're talking about being open-minded. We're talking about being, you know, charitable and and good and act in good faith and read widely. And and yes, and yeah, at the end of the day, we're all going to die and we and and there, we can't read every book. So I I don't know if there's much we can say, you know, a priori, you know, from the outset, just from, you know, pure theory, like without any context of like how to do this. Um because a lot of people are going to say the stuff that you think is worth the time of day and worth reading. They're going to say, no, it's not. And I mean, even, and you're even going to get smart people saying like, like different smart people saying different stuff is either worth reading or not. It's hard out there. Uh, I don't think being open-minded means, you know, I like the phrase be open-minded, but don't be so open-minded. Your brain falls out. I don't think being open-minded means just being like, like, a, like putting on some hat and then like pretending to be like completely impartial with like everything you see or every new argument or thinker, like context matters and your ideas matter and you have to meet other ideas where you're at. I mean, uh, I've never researched the, um, the shape of the, the, the planet, uh, myself, but, um, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's, it's more or less round. And I don't see any good reason to to give the time of day to stuff that's developing these complex arguments for why. No, actually, like like you're just wildly off base, and um, and we've all been like wildly misled. And yet at the same time, I'm in the position of, in some people's eyes, being a flat earther when it comes to political philosophy. We're thinking we don't need a state. Um, with something like economics, I, I think a lot, there's a lot of insight in, in uh, praxeology. A lot of people often compare that to to uh, being not just as like ridiculous or fringe as the flat earth view, but like being epistemically similar, uh, uh, like this unfalsifiable. I mean, we don't have to get into a whole argument about economic methodology and philosophy of science, but 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 I guess the fact is to like be aware that you're also perceived that way by other people on some issues and. All, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's weird if you have no weird I- ideas. Like if you're just buying into like every popular idea, like no matter what, like that's like that's strange. There's no way the mainstream or the status quo is right about everything. But it would be really weird if they're wrong about everything. So like just defining your views in opposition to the mainstream is like a completely lost cause and like is another way of enslaving yourself to to the thing that you're trying to oppose. It's not being open-minded, just being closed-minded to different um, viewpoints. At the beginning of our conversation, we talked a bit about this problem of situating libertarianism on the right. And 
well, we're we're not saying you know now resituated on the left. If if we as as advocates for liberty want to try to counterbalance some of this, like there's been too much focus on talking with and to and and taking ideas from the right, and we want to instead try to bring in some ideas outside of it and talk to people outside of it. What's a good place to start? And what I mean by that is what are ideas from, say, from the left that libertarians can learn from? And what are ideas that that we as advocates for radical individual and economic liberty bring to could bring to conversations with people on the left that might be persuasive to them or might resonate with them? Well, first, what libertarians can take from the left. So libertarians, I mean, we never really got into um, pre-fusionist libertarians. Libertarians in the in the 19th century uh, were really associated with the American anarchist movement um, with Benjamin Tucker's magazine, Liberty, and with writers of, uh, that contributed to that and other anarchists like Lysander Spooner or Voltaire Declare. And, and they saw themselves as completely on the side of you know, of, of labor, of the worker that saw themselves on the side of feminism and, and free love and free thought. And then they viewed them and, and, and abolitionism, um, um, until, um, slavery was ended in America. And they thought of the, and, and they thought of these things as, 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 you know, part of the same ultimately emancipatory project. And I think that, you know, Freedom is not just the freedom to conserve, it's the freedom to create. Libertarians are so used, are very used to thinking about freedom in those terms instead of freedom in terms of emancipation and, and freedom for what from what has been, freedom from what has, has constrained people, not freedom to go back to some, uh, you know, idealized um, romantic time in history. Um and uh, and I think having that kind of emancipatory mindset and attitude and seeing libertarian ideas as part and parcel of a broader cause for freedom, it doesn't have to dilute libertarian ideas. It can strengthen them and make them even stronger, I think, um, and seeing them interconnected with other fights for liberation, whether it's feminism or, or um, anti-racism or we were talking earlier about government bills that were clearly – um, even on purely, even the most fusionist libertarian grounds, I think ought to be opposed that are harming trans people or, or, or queer people. And so I think libertarians should see themselves. They don't, it doesn't mean you abandon your libertarian ideas. It doesn't mean you just start talking like some imagined version of some annoying left-wing person that you, or some real version of an annoying left-wing person you've talked to. But, you know, it just means, uh, you know, expanding your range and seeing how, how, this fight for freedom might be interconnected with other fights for freedom as well. In terms of the left, well, the left has a lot of work to do, just like libertarians. I mean, we could all use some introspection, I suppose. But, I mean, the left is so allergic to anything smelling of markets, um, really of, of individual conceptions of freedom, of individualism. And there are ways of going wrong with individualism, but 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 the left is so wildly allergic to it. I mean, this was so um, apparent just the other day when AOC, 
who sometimes sounds like a little more libertarian sometimes, but this, this was so reflected in her tweet about zoning and about saying that the problem with zoning was, was deregulation and how we need to regulate it further in order to get rid of zoning laws. Did you see that? I mean, sure. If that's going to work, if that works for her, like she's a politician, she has, there's certain issues to her context. This is what I meant earlier by trying to like plan everything from the outset. But like, but like that there is like a sign of like, why is the left? So they need to recapitulate everything even remotely smelling of libertarian language into their own thing, even when it's like wildly off base and, and perhaps deeply confusing the issue at hand. Um, no, the problem with zoning is obviously regulations. That's what zoning thing. Uh, that's what it is. So we need less of that. I read um, that as a centralization versus localized control distinction on her part in the sense that, you know, when, the left tends to think much more in terms of the federal government ought to do X and, and that what she was complaining about was as, as I mean, lots of pro housing, you know, pro growth people make the same claims is that localized zoning control leads to, you know, can lead to these really bad outcomes because you have very concentrated interests of the people who live in the, you know, who have the the big homes that they want to see the property values go up or they have the views, whatever, like very concentrated interests that can just shut down anything, any proposals because they're, they can show up at the boards or whatever. Like, and, and so on the one hand, like she's, she's right in the sense that like, if the federal government is removed enough that it could it could regulate that kind of localized control out of existence by saying like no we're going to have uniform zoning across the country whatever like so I, I can kind of like see what she's getting at but it is this i think it is this like rec- not recognizing and this is i think a real issue with the left is the local control is this is like authoritarian busybodies trying to push people around whether it is the you know, the NIMBYs or it is like Missouri's anti-gay bill or whatever. And what's needed is us in the form of the federal government, which represents like just the people coming together to, you know, institute the general will, which will serve as a corrective. Um, and and that is that's like a, you know, a more regulation in, in this direction that they prefer. I I. Man, you're you're being so charitable to these American hating leftists, uh, Aaron. Um, I, I no, I think there's a great truth to that for sure. And I mean, this could be a whole. There's a very interesting discussion about I think federalism and decentralization and the power of local municipalities and how that relates to libertarian ideas. Um, I think that's kind of an interesting, uh, a complex issue. And I and and but that's kind of off the point. I I I, I totally see what you're saying, but but yeah, it's. Nevertheless, it feels like like a need to, um, like what you were saying, like to 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 phrase it in language that it, it is conventionally associated with, um, which is zoning is itself a regulation. Um, that I think that reflects um, a kind of a hang up on the left and and um, and 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 obviously markets the 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 conservatives have dominated the rhetoric on markets and, and libertarians who support markets value with conservatives. So you can see a little bit why 
it kind of spooks people on the left who 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 want a more fair and egalitarian and in many ways free society. Um, I think trying to convey the idea that you know I see markets as an outgrowth of freedom. Um, I see them as 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 a countervailing uh, force against traditional established powers against entrenched interests. Um, and I think often the things that, uh, that concern leftists are, are, are caused more by, um, coercive interventions into the market. And, and obviously I'm not the first to, to make that kind of argument. Um, but I think that, uh, really regardless of the specifics, I mean, Leftists and libertarians uh, have that in common of what we've been talking about a lot of isolating themselves off almost epistemically to these different arguments and different viewpoints. I guess I think one of the things that a a libertarian or a market anarchist or a radically liberal perspective can bring to the left is when when I have like when I read leftist theory or engage with people on the left like one of the things i notice is just this i don't want to say like a lack of really understanding of the nature of state power and the state as an institution or a lack of clarity about what that is and and that gets to the you know as you um as you mentioned like kind of markets as liberation from from all of these you know these traditional hierarchies that have just been really kind of relationships of domination um and relationships of you know status propped up by norms but often by the state and so on is i think what the left can learn from this from one of the big things they can learn is what the state actually is what it actually means to use state power um and whether this is like a public choice thing of you know the state will the state's interests are the state's interests um they're not they're not the people's interests um the people's interests are secondary and if they align with the state's interests great but the state will protect its own which the left seems to be very good at in isolation like they recognize that in the role of cops they're very good at recognizing like cops protect their own but they don't seem to analogize that out well to the regulatory agencies and the you know the the government as a whole um but but i think what libertarians have been very good at is articulating a theory of political power and a, and like a clear-eyed understanding of what political power is and what it means to use it and and markets as the the counterpoint to that power or the way that we can coordinate and thrive and create amazing things and innovate outside of those kinds of relationships of power and so my yeah my my core frustration when i have conversations with smart people on the left is is just like not seeing like you know maybe our the the values might be very similar the ultimate goals might be similar um but but like jesus guys like the state is not your friend um and it's not it's not this thing that you can just kind of like put in the service of the workers or whatever. It's it's an institution of violence and it always will be. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think even the more um, 
even the more state skeptical leftists um, and, and, and left anarchists who, who I think my points about markets were really directed at as, as well. They even, even there, they would benefit from, from more libertarian ideas about, about the nature of the state. Um, I think that, like you said, oftentimes the left does seem to understand that the state is itself its own private power, its own, if you want to use the word class, um, and really the biggest monopoly of them all. But then at the same time, they want to say that it's it's more malleable than that. And really it's been captured by interests. And so then you're if you're not talking about police and you're talking about some other um, uh, facet of the state, like you said, like regulations, then it seems like this different, more idealistic version of the state as somehow being immune to those private interests and reflecting some, some, some actual, um, I'm not sure the right word, maybe democratic control. Then their analysis of the state as like its own private power with, with its own interests goes out the window. And that, and that's very frustrating. I, I think, I think the left, I think the left will go nowhere if they try to achieve emancipation, emancipation through the state. I think that's what they did in the 20th century. I think it led to some of the worst horrors in our history and, and that this, the left won't get anywhere with their emancipatory goals if they don't incorporate libertarian understanding of the state um, and, and, and try to create train, change outside the state and against the state. I think that's a, a good spot to – I don't want to say end this conversation but pause this conversation because I'm sure this is uh, – to some extent this is one of the central – pieces of the broader conversation I want this Reexamining Liberty podcast to be. Um, and so thank you, Corey, for coming on. It was, it was wonderful to get you on the first episode. You were the dream guest for that. And I tell the listeners, you should follow Corey on Twitter. Um, Corey has influenced my thinking on a lot of things, I think, more than pretty much anyone over the last several years. I've learned a ton from our conversations and our arguments, um, and he's made me better at thinking about and articulating and defending these ideas. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the kind words. I can't tell you how much that, that means to me. I really appreciate it. I've very much enjoyed becoming friends with you over the last however many years we've, we've interacted on social media, um, and it's been lots of fun. And I've, I've learned a lot as well, and I'm really glad that I'm able to be a uh, your inaugural guest here. I'm, I have high, high hopes for the podcast as well, obviously, since we have such similar uh, outlooks. So good luck with every episode you have as well. Yeah. Thank you, Corey. And thank you to all of you who decided to tune in for this this first episode of Reimagining Liberty. I hope you'll stick around and enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm.